Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 75 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk with Gina Cho about her new book on work-life balance and building a mindful law practice. Today's podcast is sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud. Future-proof your firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Zero, Beautiful Legal Accounting, Simplified. Find out more at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O dot com. If you enjoy our show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So I saw this post the other day claiming that a majority of U.S. Supreme Court justices are millionaires and what an outrage that is that they are so out of touch with ordinary Americans or some such thing. And it feels like a big red herring to me because my <laughs> sense is that the vast majority of 65 to 85-year-old successful lawyers should have a net worth of in excess of $1.0 million, given that their even middle-class homes should be paid off by then, given mm -hmm. that had they been setting aside 5 or 10% of their incomes for retirement, let alone having government pensions, that they should have built up retirement assets of half a million to a million or more dollars. It, it, it's this strange thing where we're talking about Scrooge McDuck and the guy from Monopoly. And the reality is like most middle class to upper middle class people by the time they're near retirement age should be millionaires on paper. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair criticism that they're out of touch for a variety of reasons, but this probably isn't one of them. So the analysis says that uh, the highest net worth member of the Supreme Court is Stephen Breyer, who has six or $10 million, and that the lowest are Kennedy and Thomas, who have somewhere between 600000 and $1.2 million in net worth. And Anthony Kennedy having $600,000 in net worth does not put him out of touch with anybody. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does. It is a lot of money. It's, it's a big number, so it seems like a big number, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope to be worth a million dollars by the time I'm 70. Well, and to be clear, like this includes all of your assets. So if right. you've been paying down your house and saving for retirement on paper, you're close to a millionaire, even if you're a slightly above middle class person. Well, my financial advisor says that if all I have is a net worth of about a million bucks by the time I retire, I'm going to be living a pauper's existence. So Right, exactly. Like, th <laughs> these aren't crazy numbers. Now, if they were billionaires, that would be out of touch. Yeah, no, agreed. All right, so red herring. Yes. Um, here's another one that uh, popped up that I thought was interesting and maybe worth mentioning briefly is uh, there was a picture of Mark Zuckerberg holding up a big Instagram frame celebrating 500 million followers or users or whatever. Um, that wasn't the interesting part. The interesting part is that um, if you zoomed in on his laptop, you could see that his uh, his microphone was taped over and so was his video camera. Um, and also as a minor point of interest, he uses Thunderbird for his email client. But um, but I thought that was interesting uh, that he's now taking some precautions. And, um, and it turns out that people can turn on your microphone without 
you getting notice and they can turn on your camera on your uh, computer without turning on the light. And so it's it's not crazy paranoid. Can in the sense that these are like sophisticated hacker moves. They can't just do that. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't um, put tape over my camera or my microphone um, uh, input on my laptop, and I'm I'm not sure that uh, it isn't a reasonable precaution. Um, the trick is people aren't just going to randomly do this, um, not as randomly as other hacking can occur, but more likely they're going to need to target your computer and try to get a piece of software on there that will let them monitor it. Right, and if you're the fourth richest person in the world, you're probably a target for someone. Yeah, I, I think I'm still comfortable saying that you're probably, this is one of those things where you're probably not a target unless you have reason to think that you might be. And so from from my perspective, though, like you don't need to be a billionaire or paranoid, going back to billionaires again, mm-hmm. um, or paranoid to take these precautions because it's literally just a piece of tape that you stick over the camera, except when you want to use it and you peel it off. It costs zero dollars and takes zero time. And there is the chance that someone for some reason wants to spy on you and this will stop them. Yeah, no, I, I, and I totally agree with that too. Um, It's a minor inconvenience that I haven't decided to do. And it's not that Mark Zuckerberg is Mark Zuckerberg necessarily. It's that do you have somebody who might be interested in what you're doing and is willing to take the extremely minor step of installing spyware on your laptop because it's not hard to get you to click on the wrong thing. Um, so it's it's a pretty reasonable precaution uh, in light of that. It's kind of like the, the USB thing. I read recently, and I think we've mentioned it, that airlines are having trouble with their planes because people with Android handsets are constantly plugging their devices in to charge them on planes. Um, and basically, they're all compromised with this USB hack that I've posted about a few times. Um, so I think it's reasonable to take precautions with USB. Um, I, in fact, I just bought a little USB condom called the Sync Stop, and you plug it in and it only enables charging and none of the other data ports. So that can't, that can't happen. And I intend to use that. Oh, that's cool. I don't know about that. Yeah. How much is that? I think it was 20 bucks. Um, okay. There's a stripped down version that's maybe a little bit less. And, um, and so, yeah, so now I can plug my devices into those public USB charging things without worrying that I'm catching a virus from them uh, in doing so. And um, so I just stuck it in my backpack and I'll bring it along whenever I travel. So I like that. I'll have to get one. Yeah. So check out the sync stop. Consider taping up your camera and microphone. Uh, not not the microphone jack. That won't do anything, obviously, but, um, but the little microphone hole on your computer. And maybe those are reasonable precautions that you want to consider taking. And on a totally different note, here's my conversation with Gina. Hi, my name is Gina Cho. I'm a partner with a San Francisco law firm, JC Law Group, where I practice with my husband. I am an author for the American Bar Association, and I have a new book out titled The Anxious Lawyer, an eight-week guide to a joyful and satisfying law practice through mindfulness and meditation. Awesome. Thank you for being with us, Gina. Thank you. So I want to talk about your book, but beforehand, I feel like we should maybe set the back drop for it, which is kind of how you, well, you started out on a pretty typical career path for a lawyer, right? So how did you end up teaching mindfulness to law firms? Yeah, it's an interesting journey. And I think that if someone had told me this is where I would be, 
Oh, gosh, 13 years after graduating from law school. And when I graduated in 2003, I would have said, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. I would never teach mindfulness or meditation. Um, but interestingly, when I was in law school, um, I randomly found the Himalayan Institute, which is a yoga center. And it's a sort of a very traditional yoga teaching or yogic teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so I was sort of introduced to mindfulness and meditation back in law school, but then I graduated from law school and I jumped right in. I became an assistant state attorney in Tampa, Florida, and I completely fell out of the practice. It was just something that I did in my third year of law school to mm -hmm. just help manage all the stress and anxiety for taking the bar exam. Um, so I was a state attorney. Um, I was with the state attorney's office for several years, and then I moved to San Francisco and my husband and I started our law practice. So this was back in 2008. And of course, for those of us that were practicing law back then, it was a very, very different environment than what it was now. And we were actually doing a bankruptcy law practice. So you could just imagine how busy we were. I mean, it just felt like we couldn't get the clients through the door fast enough. We were right. just, I was literally spending three days a week having six to eight appointments per day. And I think one of the things they don't teach you in law school is that the work that we do as attorneys is is in many ways very traumatic emotionally. So, you know, it's, I guess, very similar to what a therapist might face. So a typical client obviously never comes into my office because with good news, right? And like no one ever goes to see a bankruptcy attorney with good news. <laughs> and of course, that's true for most attorneys. So I might have a client that comes in and maybe a husband and wife and they would sit down and they would share with me that they, uh, you know, liquidated all of their savings, their retirement, they took out a second mortgage on their home. They borrowed money every dime that they can from friends and family, all in an effort to try to put their daughter through an experimental treatment program, which is not covered by insurance. And not only did the experimental treatment fail, but now they're facing bankruptcy as a result of their, you know, of their child's illness. And I remember just feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so um, heartbreaking. You know, I would literally go home and I would just, you know, just sit around with my husband and we would just talk about these cases all the time. Like I, you know, it's just so um, emotionally difficult for me. And I just didn't have the tools to be able to, um, uh, you know, and there's, of course, like vicarious trauma and secondary trauma and um, all of these issues that like, for example, therapists are very well aware of that when you're with somebody that is going through some very difficult life event that has an impact on you, right? Like secondary trauma. Yeah, I use, I always used to tell my clients, um, because I, I was meeting with the same clients um, often before they've declared bankruptcy, dealing with their debt collection problems. And um, I would always say like, okay, uh, when you've signed the retainer and, and we're good to go, which means that your problems are now my problems. Hmm. And the problem with that is that it's true, right? You take, you take their problems home with you. Right. Yeah. And of course, there's nothing I can actually do about you know, their, their daughter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, yes, I can get them out of debt. Um, so I started just experiencing a lot of stress, um, and a lot of anxiety. Although if you had asked me back then, if I was stressed or anxious, I would have told you, no, absolutely not. Hmm. Um, and, and at that time, my boyfriend at the time decided, oh, this would be a great time for us to get married. <laughs> <laughs> 
So on top of running a brand new law firm, so learning um, a fairly you know new business, a new area of law, learning how to run a business, I was adding um, wedding planning on top of that. So I would get up, I don't know, seven or eight in the morning. I would work until nine or ten at night, and then I would do wedding planning until like two a.m. And um, eventually what I started to notice was I was having all of these weird symptoms. I would have like weird stomach aches and back aches and headaches and all of these sort of psychosomatic symptoms that I couldn't, you know, like they couldn't ever really find any medical causes for. There was nothing physical that was triggering these symptoms. And of course, when you go to the doctor, they're like, well, here's a painkill for your headache and here's this thing for your stomach ache and here's this thing for your back ache. So I was sort of managing all the symptoms. Um, but as as we were planning the wedding, um, I started to notice that I was losing hair. Um, hmm. So not just a little bit of hair, but like clumps of hair. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I'm dying. <laughs> like we're getting married and I am dying. Um, so I went to a doctor and he ran every test and there was nothing. And once again, there was nothing physically wrong with me. And he goes, you know, maybe you have like some mild depression or some sort of an anxiety disorder. And he's like, here, here, try some antidepressants and here, try some anti-anxiety meds. Um, which I think is kind of crazy that you go to your general practitioner and they just prescribe, uh, you know, medication like, hey, try like this. that. Yeah, try this. And I was like, well, will this actually help me stop losing my hair? And he goes, well, I don't know. Um, and around the same time, a friend of mine that's a, psych a psychotherapist, she said to me, she's like, you know, Gina, maybe you have some sort of an anxiety disorder. Um, there's this clinic at Stanford that specializes in anxiety. Maybe you want to go check it out. And she goes, you know, like losing hair is actually a very, very common symptom of having chronic stress. Um, so I Googled it. And sure enough, you know, it was true. Um, so, you know, I, I did a lot of research on the clinic. And of course, it's at Stanford. So it's world renowned institution. Um, so I went in, they had an online form where you can fill out and they called me a couple of days later and they said, um, you know, we, we screened you and we think you may actually have an anxiety disorder. Do you want to come into our clinic? Um, so I went in and they did some more tests and they said, oh, you um, have social anxiety disorder. And I was like, what the hell is that? You know, it sounds hmm. like such a made up disorder in many ways. But once I started to read up on it, I was just like, oh, that's me. That totally sounds like me. <laughs> um, so I was actually in this class with maybe about 10 or 15 other people. And it was a 10 week class. Um, and what's interesting about the class is that they actually scan your brain beforehand. And then they huh. also scan your brain afterwards. So it actually, they're actually Actually measuring how going through that class changes your brain and um, the mode of treatment that they were using was called cognitive behavioral therapy which is highly highly effective for mm -hmm. managing um, anxiety disorders but then they were doing a study so parallel to the cognitive behavioral um, therapy they were also running mindfulness-based stress reduction workshops um, and they were trying to see which one was more effective and when the therapist um, I guess the scientists basically told me about the two treatment options. I was like, put me in the mindfulness class because that I know that I remember mm -hmm. from law school, but it's a study. So they randomly assign you and I was eventually placed into the CBT program. And um, and then so I went back to Stanford and they have these open mindfulness classes that anyone can take is run by um, this dentist that specializes in TMJ disorders. 
And so I actually took the class once. I loved it so much. So being, of course, like an A student, I took the class two more times. <laughs> and I thought, why aren't they teaching these tools to every lawyer? Because, um, you know, it really changed my relationship with the way I practice law. So I learned ways that I can be with the client and be with the difficulty while I'm in the office, but I'm not constantly walking around with all of their troubles sort of swirling around in my head constantly. So I'm not waking up in the middle of my middle of the night thinking about my clients. I'm not waking up first thing in the morning thinking about my uh, my clients. And I jokingly tell people that I started practicing mindfulness and meditation because I got tired of showering with all of my clients. Like I'd be <laughs> in the shower, shampooing my my hair thinking about all of my clients and it's like well no wonder I was losing hair right yeah. um so then actually very randomly um Chris who used to actually write um for the lawyerist um we connected on Twitter and he said hey I want to write about mindfulness um you know can I interview you and I was like I, I, I don't know. I'm like a closeted meditator. I, I'm not really <laughs> open about this stuff with anyone. Um, so he sent me the list of questions. And I think I sat on the questions for like three months because I was just like, oh, my God, I don't know if I'm actually ready to come out as a as a mindfulness and meditation practitioner, as a lawyer, I was like, what are other lawyers going to think? Um, but, you know, the article ran and it was amazing. I had so many lawyers reach out to me. Um, I had law professors that actually teach mindfulness. Um, I had longtime meditators. I also had a lot of people that were struggling with their own anxiety. And, you know, it was just so well received. Um, so I guess it's also kind of um uh, sweet and very synchronistic that I'm back on the Laureus podcast. That's awesome. I sort yeah. Of feel like, yeah, you, yeah. You guys <laughs> sort of gave me sort of my um, entry into um, becoming a, an out of the closet mindfulness and meditation <laughs> practitioner. Well, maybe now's a good time to ask then. So <laughs> you, so you got all this great results. Everybody out there is a lot of people are, are doing it. So, um, and, and you know, we've had, we've talked about this before, but I'm a pretty skeptical guy when it comes to self-help fads, whether it's paleo diets or like the secret or well, meditation. So, um, but you know, I get meditation. Um, it makes sense to me, but I bet a lot of our listeners are kind of like, oh, that's like just a, a fad thing. But why is it the real deal? Why is meditation and mindfulness not just a passing fad? Well, it's interesting that people think about it as a fad, right? Because when you look at every religious practice, when you look at the very, very old yogic um, teachings from India that's been handed down for thousands and thousands of years, humans... I think at our core, um, crave that space where we're just sitting with ourselves in silence and introspection so that we can better understand what is going on inside. And that then in turn helps us understand the world around us better. Um, so it's, it's interesting that we think about it as being a fad, but it's not. And I think when you look at every religion, there is a practice of sitting in silence and there is a practice of sitting in contemplation. And I think if you engage in this practice, you naturally see the benefit of engaging in it. Maybe, uh, maybe meditation connotes too much like, you know, Buddhist meditation or yogis or something. And maybe mindfulness is kind of a way to uh, embrace the meditation traditions in all religions. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic and um, praying the rosary is a type of meditation. Um, yeah. You know, any, anything focused like that. 
I, I so I, I tried meditation for a while. I, I liked it fine. Um, but I, I also started running around the same time and I started feeling like um, sort of the rhythm, uh, the regularity of my pace, my breathing when I'm running, uh, I, to me felt like it was also pretty meditative. And so I, I eventually gave up, um, you know, sitting quietly meditation for uh, just running regularly. And I, does that seem okay to you? Does that, or does that, do you think I'm, do you think I'm not right about that? I, and I, I don't know. I don't, I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> So um, I'm laughing here because um, the question you're asking me is, is such the almost like um, it's a question that I get asked a lot. And I find that with lawyers, we're so focused on doing things sort of correctly. And I'm using my air quotation mark here. You <laughs> Even just the way you phrase the question. Yeah, it's like, well, I tried meditation and that really wasn't my thing. And I started running and I'm finding that that does what it seems meditation does for other people. Is this okay? And I think meditation, whatever that may look like, is such a personal experience. Um, so I really tell people like, you know, try it, like try sitting in silence for, let's say, like commit and say, I'm going to sit quietly every day for two minutes for 21 days. And there's research um, around that, that that is enough to actually sh um, change your brain chemistry and just see what happens. Like, and I think what you're describing is perfect because you said, I'm going to commit to trying this for some period of time and see if it works for you, right? Because this isn't like, there's no like one size fits all diet. There's no one size fits all um, self-care program. There's no one-size-fits-all wellness program. So, you know, I, I, like I, I would never tell people like this is something that like everyone should do. But I think for the skeptics, you know, like what do you have to lose? Just try it and see for yourself. I mean, if you're not convinced by the thousands and thousands of neuroscience studies that show all the benefits of mindfulness and meditation, then try it you know i mean you have so, nothing to lose so let me but but what is but what is it like what what is the how do i know if i'm uh how do i know if i'm getting the benefits that i'm supposed to be getting from meditation from however i am meditating Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so I think, so that's also interesting too, because what I get out of my meditation practice has evolved over the years. And my co-author, Karen Gifford, she's been meditating for like many, many decades, right? So what she gets out of her meditation, it's also very, very different than what I get out of it. Hmm. You know, I mean, for me, when I meditate, what I notice is that I can be um, more empathetic towards others and um, I think more importantly myself so it'll let it gives me this space where um, I'm not walking through life sort of thinking like everyone's out to get me or everyone dislikes me um, you know I have to constantly be on guard which I think is so woven almost into my DNA because of probably going to law school. Um, so you know it, it, it gives me that and that's what I'm getting out of the practice. Um, right now, you know, huh. so and, and it's been different. Like, so when I first started, it was really noticing my stress and anxiety level going down. And that was great. It was like, okay, like it's working. It, you know, is working. Um, and, you know, it's just been evolving and changing. So I mean, it seems to me the key is basically like, are you are you sort of letting your mind wander without really thinking about anything in particular um, for a period of time? Is that about right? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, what you're trying to do is um, 
basically train your mind to focus on a singular object of focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're meditating, typically you'll focus on your breath. So feeling the inhale, right, and noticing what that feels like in your body, and then exhaling. Um, and, and you may be doing that when you're running. Right, you know, so you that's may a, be like the, the pace of my feet, um, mm-hmm. the, the breathing, the regular breathing, um, that, that sounds about right to me. I get it now. I yeah. Think I get it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then when you're running and, you know, I'm sure like you're sort of focusing on, okay, breathing, arms moving, feet hitting the pavement. And then your mind probably sort of checks out a little bit and yep. then thinks about like, oh, did I go, did I remember to get milk at the grocery store? Yep. Or, you know, did I remember to do X, Y, and Z for my kids? And then eventually your mind comes back and you're like, oh, wait, I'm running. Um, and then you might go back to noticing, you know, like the breath. Um, so actually in meditation, there's walking meditation, um, which a lot, you know, if you go on these week long or two week long or longer meditation retreats, you'll engage in um, where you're moving and you're really paying attention to the very nuanced details of the movement. Hmm. Gotcha. And it's just a way of keeping yourself focused on one thing that doesn't really matter because it's a way of training yourself to ignore those other things, thoughts that are coming at you. Or not ignore them, right? But, But sort of recognize them and just let them be and leave them alone. Right, right. Not getting caught up in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what oftentimes happens is our mind sort of is, you know, it's almost like a broken record, right? So I might just randomly have this thought where I remember, you know, some experience during trial where the judge asked me a question and I maybe stumbled and then I'm sort of beating myself up about that experience 10 years later. And it's almost like I'm in the courtroom in Mm -hmm. that moment, you know, and it's just like, oh, in that moment, you can just recognize like, oh, my mind is doing that habitual thing where I'm thinking about that past behavior or past experience and allowing myself to dwell in it. And then I can then just sort of move my attention away from that memory to whatever is happening in the present moment. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take two minutes from our sponsors. And when we come back, would you guide us through a two minute meditation so that we can get a feel for it? I would love to. Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully managed desktop-as-a-service engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, Simplifying your practice management since 1983. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Xero. Get a free trial at Xero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. And we're back. Okay, Gina, I'd like to meditate. And I'm pushing my things out of the way here so that I can have a, um, a space. And I'd like you to take us through a meditation so that we can see what it's all about. Awesome. Um, so I will say if you're driving, obviously, you wouldn't want to do this. <laughs> but you can pull over. 
You, you can pull over. It's only two or, minutes. Right? Or you can come back to um, this podcast. All right. So um, I think there's all sorts of like mystery or, um, you know, it can feel really foreign to meditate for the very, very first time if you've never done it. So basically what you want to do is um, just kind of wherever you're sitting, just notice the posture of your body. So notice your feet and how your feet is positioned against the floor below you. And notice the parts of your body that's making contact with the chair below you. And just check your posture. So noticing how your head is positioned, your neck, your shoulders, spine, hips. And make any adjustments that you would like. And you want to sit in a way that's both comfortable and alert. Then allow your eyes to close. And when you close your eyes, it's a very different experience than having the eyes open. Using your senses, just see whatever it is that you can notice. You may become aware of different sounds that you didn't notice before. You may notice different thoughts sensations or emotions. And whatever those experiences may be, I'm just letting it be exactly the way it is without needing to change anything or force it to be different in any way. Now let's turn the attention to the breath. So we're just going to take three breaths right here. And with each inhalation, really imagine drawing in the energy and drawing in the air and moving it all the way down to the bottom of your diaphragm. So breathing in through the nose and then releasing. Let's do that two more times. Breathing in. And releasing. And one more, breathing in. And releasing. And we'll be bringing this meditation practice to a close, but just take a moment and notice how you're feeling in this moment. And whenever you feel ready, begin to wiggle your fingers and toes and move your body in any way that feels good to you. You can stretch your arms, shoulders, you might lengthen your spine, and then allow the eyes to open. And that's it. Thank you. 
Um, I, you know, it's been a while since I actually tried doing that, and I was reminded of how, um, right in the middle there, um, my body just sort of uh, releases a lot of tension. Mm. I just sort of relax. Yeah. That's kind of a nice feeling. I like that. It is. Yeah. And it's, and imagine being able to do this right before you walk into a hearing or meeting with a client or responding to that email from your opposing counsel. Uh, you know, I think everyone can agree that being calmer allows you to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, and that probably took, I wasn't timing myself, but you know, I, probably two or three minutes. Yeah. yeah. So actually chaining your brain to actually go into that homeostasis mode, almost on command. And that's pretty powerful, right? That's pretty powerful in terms of training your mind for optimal performance. You know, one of the benefits that I, um, that I think I get um, from regular running meditation, whatever, whatever my, my meditation looks like, um, is uh, I am better at focusing on things. And um, I, I was, there's a, a New York, uh, the New York Mag- New York Times Magazine writer Clive Thompson uh, was at a conference here in Minnesota, and uh, we were chatting afterwards. Uh, and you know, he's he is a both a prolific writer and a social media person. Uh, and I and I asked him, I'm like, so you like me? You've got you know, you're, you've got Twitter up, and you've got all this stuff going on all the time. How do you actually just sit down and write? And he was like, I meditate, uh, and I think meditation helps me to say, you know what, I'm not going to open Twitter right now um, because you end, it, end up, it ends up being something you do unconsciously. You're like, oh, Twitter time, um, before you've even finished a sentence on the page in front of you. And uh, he, he says that med- meditation and mindfulness just helps him recognize that um, he's reaching for Twitter when he doesn't need to be and keeps him on the page in writing. So Yeah, I love that example. And I think the sort of um, the important thing to to notice about that is that he is aware, right? So becoming more aware of your habitual behavior. So it's not that checking Twitter is bad. It's that you want to notice, you know, like, am I doing this out of habit, right? Is there something else I should be focusing on? Because so often we do things and we don't even really notice that we're doing it. So that awareness is really what's key. Or like when your commute, when you just arrive at home without remembering anything between walking out your office door and arriving at home. (laughs) <laughs> it's like to it's to, it's sort of tuning back into what you're doing in yeah, your life so exactly yeah so um I, I meant to ask you this at the beginning but we got uh i sidetracked us um <laughs> so the book is out and we've mentioned it a couple of times uh it's by the time this uh podcast goes live it will have been out for a couple of weeks and um it, it's an eight-week guide so presumably the people who are beginning the book and following it in good faith will only have been about a quarter of the way through it by the time they hear this podcast. Um, what what are readers going to be doing during those eight weeks? So we wanted to make a book that's really accessible to lawyers. Um, there's lots of meditation and mindfulness books out there, but not one specifically for lawyers. So each week there's a different theme. Um, and I can just run through the eight weeks yeah, with you. So sure. week one is just beginning to meditate. So kind of getting your feet wet. Week two is on mindfulness. Uh, week three is clarity. Week four is compassion towards others. Uh, week five, self-compassion. Week six is mantra repetition. Seven, heartfulness. And week eight, we wrap up with gratitude. Um, and I think, you know, gratitude is such an amazing practice. Um, and I think as lawyers, we tend to just so 
hyper focus on all the things that's not going right in our lives. We're you know trained to think that way actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, um, just taking a moment to notice all the things that we have to be grateful for. You know, I actually think this kind of dovetails with my interview with Dean Strang in an unusual way. Um, he at the very end, I asked him, you know, what can lawyers do to correct um, the sorts of justice system problems that are on display in the Making a Murderer documentary. And he said, you know what, one of the things that lawyers need to do is just be a little bit more humble. Mm. Um, we Everything we do is win and lose, black and white, um, mm-hmm. me, not you. And uh, we place blame, we lay fault, and we act as if when we win, we really won. Like it actually yeah. means that we were in the right. And he says, you know what, maybe we should all um, recognize that we don't know everything. Um, it may not be as black and white as we are trained to fight for it to be uh, and approach law practice a little bit differently. And it sounds like um, both the book, um, Mindfulness, there's some overlap there of, you know, stepping back and letting yourself see the big picture and not seeing the one myopic like I win side of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm a huge fan of him, um, for sure, and I was a huge fan of the show. Um, and I think, you know, what he shared just has so much wisdom, um, right? And I think that's, as lawyers, as uh, counselors, you know, we need that wisdom, we need that perspective. And so rather than telling your client, oh, yes, you're absolutely 110% right, and the other party is 0% right, you know, that's rarely ever true. <laughs> and it's right? good to remember that in day to day. Like I see the latest tweet storm about, you know, we're going to mob so-and-so now. Yeah. I mean, you know, hold on. Let's, let's, let's wait. Let's find out. Maybe we don't know everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really appreciate that perspective and it certainly doesn't surprise me coming from him. So um, everybody wants, uh, everybody wants help to do cool things, right? We all want an app or whatever. Are, are there, maybe this is where we should close is um, by talking about some tools that there are to help people meditate besides your book, honestly, obviously, which looks like a good place for a lot of lawyers to start. Yeah, there are lots of apps out there. Um, thanks to um, the you know the the recent interest in m- mindfulness and meditation, two of my favorites are Insight Timer, and I like Insight Timer because it's um, honestly because every time you meditate, you get a gold star. <laughs> And then you get five gold stars and then you get a red star and then you get 25 red stars and you get a green star. And so for me, getting that star keeps me honest and it also tracks. So when I look at it, it tells me exactly how many minutes I spent meditating this year. And so I can't lie to myself. Um, and then also you can connect with your friends and you can see um, when they're meditating and track their meditation hmm. progress. So, and it's been a long time since anybody gave me a gold star for anything. Exactly. So that's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for me, I that's the one that I really, really like. Um, if you want more of hand-holding and if you want more of a, if you're more like, here's your homework for the day kind of person, Headspace is great. And you can try the first 10 days for for free. And then you can buy um, either a monthly subscription or an annual subscription. And what's really cool is that they have lots of different themes. Mm -hmm. Um, So they may have themes around um, uh, 
I don't know, like um, increasing productivity or increasing focus time. Or, and they'll actually send out an email to everyone in their community every month. And they vote on the theme that they would like to focus on for the next month. So it's really cool. Um, it's a great, great app. Um, so those two are my favorite meditation apps. Very cool. Thanks. So Insight Timer and Headspace. Yeah. We'll, we'll put those links in the show notes. Um, Gina, thank you so much for being with us. And I enjoyed hearing the story of, of course, of how uh, Lawyerist uh, helped you along the path that you were almost certainly already on, um, of course. But uh, but you've also uh, made me think, hey, maybe I need to uh, sit down and give myself two or five or ten minutes a day and, and revisit this meditation practice. Thank you. Yeah, let me know how it goes. I will. All right, thanks. make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. Subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.